Well, please do take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 1 this morning. We are looking at verses 15 through 26. So we're going to finish Acts 1 this morning. Acts 1, 15 through 26. If you're using the blue ESV Bible on the seat backs in front of you, you can find our text on page 909. And the title of our sermon is, Let Another Take His Office. And the keywords for our worshipers in training are uh, word, apostle, and choose. We are, we are in the third week now of, of this series that we have started working through the book of Acts. So far, we've seen uh, Luke introduce a number of topics that are going to be recurring themes throughout the book. Topics such as the kingdom of God, the importance of the Old Testament for what is taking place in the book of Acts. We've seen him introduce topics like God's triune nature, the role of the Holy Spirit in the advance of God's kingdom, the link between suffering and the expanse of that kingdom, the inclusion of Gentiles into the people of God that once were formally exclusively Jewish. And we've seen the importance of prayer and, and unity as markers of the Christian church. Last week, what we saw was Jesus' final conversation with his apostles and his disciples, where he, he laid out for them the path of the kingdom's advancement. What would it look like as the kingdom advanced throughout the world as the apostles and others witnessed to Christ as they were empowered to do, as they would be empowered to do by the Holy Spirit. This is the conversation that he has with them. And after his ascension into heaven, the disciples, we see, return to Jerusalem and they devote themselves to prayer. They are waiting on the Holy Spirit, the promised baptism of the Spirit, and they are praying and they are unified. And that was where we left them last week praying unto God. As we return to them this week, we find them still waiting. In total, they waited about 10 days, and we'll talk a bit more about that next week. But So they waited about 10 days, and so for us, it kind of stretches uh, several weeks, and so it doesn't quite feel the same. But they're, they're waiting still in our text this morning. But they're not passive in their waiting, as we mentioned last Lord's Day. They were devoting themselves to prayer, but here in verses 15 through 26, they, we see them recognize that there is something else that needs to be done while they wait. So let me read these verses, verses 15 through 26. Then we'll outline them and get to work. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. He said, brothers... The Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field and the, with reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. 
and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry, an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So there are... uh, really just two big ideas that I want you to see with me from this passage this morning. First, in verses 15 through 20, we will see the apostles' commitment to Scripture, to being guided and led by Scripture. And in particular for them, it was the Old Testament. Second, in verses 21 through 26, we're going to see uh, Luke introduce uh, the interplay between Uh, man's responsibility to obey God and to live wisely before him on the one hand and God's sovereign will to bring about his ultimate purposes in all things on the other. So two things, scripture, the apostles' devotion to scripture, and then uh, man and God and, and the responsibility and sovereignty of each. So look with me in the first place at verse Verses 15 through 20, where we see the apostles' commitment to Scripture. What we see here is Peter stands up and he addresses this group of about 120 people. And he says that the Scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas. Uh, I trust you all are aware of who Judas Iscariot is. He was one of the 12 apostles and uh, betrayed Jesus into the hands of the Romans, and it was at his betrayal that Jesus was eventually crucified. And so, uh, so Peter says here that the scripture concerning him had to be fulfilled. And then Luke, it almost is certainly Luke here in verses 18 and 19, who's, and it's not Peter continuing to talk, but it's Luke introducing an explanation for Theophilus. Um, He says that since Judas had been numbered among the apostles and had betrayed Jesus, had defected, and then had a shameful and, and abysmal death, it was required that he be replaced. And then we pick back up with Peter's speech where he quotes and applies Psalm 69, 25, and Psalm 109.8. And he confirms the point. This is in confirmation of the point that, that Luke asserts here. In verses 18 and 19, what Peter says in verse 20 does that. Now, John Stott is very helpful in the way that he discusses the way that Peter uses these two verses. Um, because I, I would imagine at, at first glance for many of us, 
Peter's quotation of these two psalms in reference to Judas may be a little confusing. My guess is that without the aid of Peter in Acts 1.20, we might struggle to ever arrive at Judas Iscariot as the his of, verse, uh, of these two psalms. Right, The his, the person being referenced here, it's very likely that you could read it and struggle to see Judas as the one being referenced there. But perhaps we shouldn't. Perhaps we should see this. This is what Stott says. He says, in quoting Psalm 69, may his camp be desolate, Peter explains what happened. That is, Judas defected from Christ and subsequently died in shame. And then in quoting Psalm 109, let another take his office, Peter explains what now needs to be done. Replace him. Let me quote Stott at length here. He says this, Psalm 69 is applied to Jesus five times in the New Testament. In it, an innocent sufferer describes how his enemies hate and insult him without cause, and how he is consumed with zeal for God's house. Towards its end, the psalmist utters a prayer that God's judgment will fall on these wicked and unrepentant people. Peter, Stott says, individualizes this text and applies it to Judas, on whom God's judgment had clearly fallen. Stott goes on, Psalm 109 is similar. It concerns wicked and deceitful people who hate and slander and attack the writer without justification. Then one particular person is singled out, perhaps the ringleader, and God's judgment on him is requested. We see it, he quotes in verse 20, May another take his office. And Peter, Stott says, applies this to Judas. Now if we are to understand, as Jesus makes clear in Luke 24, which we saw when we introduced the book of Acts, that all of the Old Testament writings were principally about him, Psalms 69 and 109 included, then it takes no stretch of the imagination to understand how Peter saw these psalms as applying to Jesus and therefore to Jesus' principal betrayer, Judas. Peter sees the importance here of the Old Testament. He sees the importance of it for understanding the ministry of Christ. Both what happened during his life on earth, but also what continued to happen during his ministry from heaven as the now reigning and ascended Lord. The Scripture, there there was still Old Testament Scripture to be fulfilled during the Lord's ministry now through the apostles. And so he sees this uh, connection with Judas here and he makes it clear. But before... Moving on, I I want to note two things in particular about Scripture that Peter helps us to see here in verse 15. Sorry, not verse 15, verse 16. And we could summarize what he helps us to see in this one sentence. Scripture is God's Word fully expressed in the words of man. Peter's affirmation here is critical for our understanding of Scripture. So questions like, where where do the Scriptures originate? 
To whom do they owe their existence? Well, principally, Scripture originates with God. Peter says that the Holy Spirit spoke these things concerning Judas. You know, it wasn't something that David made up by himself. It was from the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is what? Breathed out by God. And so the Bible originates with God, and yet the Bible didn't just fall out of the sky. It didn't just land in someone's lap out of nowhere. Peter says here that the Scripture was spoken by the mouth of David. Hebrews 1.1 says that God spoke by the prophets. 2 Peter 1.21 says that God spoke, or that men spoke from God. And Luke, in introducing this book, and in particular what he says at the beginning of Luke, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he makes clear that the origin of these letters to Theophilus would be carefully researched history. Luke worked hard on these letters to compile the facts and the data and to pull them together in one letter to present to Theophilus. So while some parts of the Bible, for instance, the Ten Commandments, were actually dictated word for word to the human author by God, most of the Bible did not originate in this way. The human element of Scripture incorporates the experiences, perspectives, and even feelings of the various authors. This is why, for instance, in the Gospels, we see writers recording the same event and providing differing details, complementary accounts. And yet, we must absolutely affirm with Peter here that the words of Scripture, and we should be clear, every word of Scripture is exactly what God intended to be written down. The human agency of Scripture does not hinder, limit, change, or affect the integrity and truthfulness of Scripture in any way. Yes, men spoke, but they spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, says Peter in his second epistle. One author writes this, he says, God's employment of human writers extends beyond the immediate inspiration of the Holy Spirit but includes every factor of the human contribution, including character, personality, experience, and long preparation. Thus we see that the divine and human contributions are not equal, but that the divine factor always controls. Just as Hebrews 1.1 asserts, God spoke by the prophets. So the Bible is the Word of God expressed fully through the very words of men. The question for us to ask then is this. How much do you appreciate that fact? How much do you appreciate the fact that Scripture, though the words of men, it is the infallible Word of God Almighty and it has a bearing on your life? If we are to live lives pleasing to God, we must look to His Word and not to our own imaginations not to our own musings. So, are you? Are, are we, Redeemer Baptist Church, are we as committed to this as the apostles were? You know, it's, it's possible, right? Maybe you're here, maybe you, maybe you don't believe the Bible. 
Maybe you're just not sure if it's true. Friend, let, let me assure you, there, there is no truer word that you will ever read, ever, than what you find in the Bible. There is no more important message that you will ever hear than what this book says and what I'm about to tell you now. The Scripture, you see, not only foretold that Jesus would be betrayed. It didn't just say that He would come and live and do His thing and eventually fail because of some betrayer at His table. The Scripture is clear that when Jesus is betrayed, when Jesus dies, that He would pay for the sins of His people. That he would rise again and prove triumphant over sin, over death, and over hell. And he stands now, as we saw last week, as the resurrected and ascended king of the universe. And he bids sinners to come to him. And so, if you do not know the Lord Jesus, if you do not know if this book is true, I implore you, and God commands you, to go to the Lord Jesus in simple faith, trusting His Word and receiving from Him forgiveness of your sins. And so that's the, that's the first thing that I want you to see with me this morning, is that the Scripture is going to be fundamental to the apostles and to their endeavors and what they understand their calling is. It was fundamental in... Uh, in this replacing of Judas, and it will continue to be throughout this book. And so I pray that we will hold and love the, the Bible as they did. Well, let's look uh, secondly then in verses 21 through 26, where we see man's responsibility and God's sovereignty set side by side in perfect harmony. I want to consider, uh, it's hard to consider those separately from one another, but here we will consider them uh, first. We'll look at man's responsibility in verses 21 through 23, and then in 24 through 26, we'll see God's sovereignty. So first, man's responsibility in 21 through 23. What we see here simply is the, the, the apostles take responsibility for what they can and what they should. Again, Stott, whom I quoted earlier, he's helpful here. He says that after they discerned from Scripture generally that Judas needed to be replaced, they used their common sense to say that if Judas's substitute was to have the same apostolic ministry that Judas had, he must also have the same qualifications, meaning that he was an eyewitness. He had an eyewitness experience of Jesus and his resurrection. And he needed to be personally appointed by him. This sound deductive reasoning led to the nomination of two men, Joseph and Matthias. You see, Judas's replacement had to be someone who had been an eyewitness to all that Jesus had done in his ministry on earth, especially his resurrection. And so with these considerations in mind, they, they put these two men forward to say, well, we, we know whom among us was uh, with us, who saw Jesus, who saw him resurrected. And so we'll put Joseph, who was called Barsabbas, and also called Justice. The guy had, I guess, several different names. And then Matthias with just the one. 
So set both forward. But before we look at w- what God does with this, I want to I note something else. So there was, like, uh, there was a particular interaction that, that Peter and the apostles had with Jesus that while it's now recorded for us as Scripture, at the time it wasn't. It, it was the word of their Lord, um, but in some ways it was something that they seemed to infer um, the importance of this replacement. And I, I want to talk about that for a minute. So why is it so important that Judas be replaced? Because we don't see the, the apostles later when they begin to die. We don't see them being replaced. And so why was Judas replaced? There's this interaction that they have at the Last Supper with Jesus. We see in Luke 22, verses 28 through 30, where we read Jesus' words to them. He says this. He says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials... And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So what this means is that the apostles, in we could say it this way, they served as the first fruits of sorts after Christ in the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. Remember what we saw last week. Jesus said, this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He basically says, yes, as you witness to me in my resurrection, here in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, the kingdom is going to expand and advance, and this restoration will take place. And so the apostles are the first fruits of this restoration There were 12 tribes of Israel, and therefore there are 12 apostles. That's not uh, a coincidence that Jesus Jesus chooses 12 apostles. And he charges these apostles with bearing witness to his resurrection, safeguarding the traditions about Jesus with whom they had been for several years and whose resurrection they had personally witnessed with their own eyes, right? So it, the, the issue here with Judas, why he had to be replaced is because he had defected. He had not completed the task assigned to the apostolic team. Later in Acts, when we see the apostles begin to undergo martyrdom, beginning with James, they don't need to be replaced since they were faithful unto death. And so the apostles here understand that they need to replace Judas on the basis of Scripture and as they infer from Jesus this, this conversation they had with him at the supper that they needed a replacement so that the, the full uh, ministry of the apostles could begin here with this commission. So they used their logic and they determined two men from among them whom the Lord would choose to replace Judas. And as we head into this this point on the sovereignty of God, I want to pause here, having just seen what what the apostles did. It seems very simple what they did, but they could have just sat around and kept waiting, but they didn't. They were they were active. And they did what they knew they were supposed to do. They, they did as much as they could. They were responsible for something, and they were obedient to that. 
So it's important that we not let God's sovereignty prevent us from appreciating the fact that God still expects us to live, expects us to live wisely, and not assume that because God is sovereign that we bear no responsibility in our lives. Right? Did God need the apostles to narrow it down to Joseph and Matthias? Was he unsure? Was the vast number of 120 disciples left just too great for, uh, for the Lord to choose? No, of course not. But it was important that the apostles, understanding that they had a task to do, and it was important that they not grow lethargic or complacent in waiting for God to fulfill his word among them. There was work to be done, and they needed to do it. God had called on them to wait, but not to be lazy. They were not to sit around, as it were, eating potato chips, drinking Slurpees, and watching television or playing video games. Now, while it ultimately wasn't up to them who would replace Judas, God had given them a stake in it. They were to apply Scripture. They were to use deductive, logical thinking to do what they knew they should. And then from there, to wait for an answer from God as he would make his choice clear. And so we see God's guidance, God's sovereignty working out further in verses 24 through 26. We see the apostles pray. Now that's, again, still them acting, but it is an acknowledgement in their prayer of God's omniscience and his ability to act. You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry. Right? So they make a request to God that He would make His choice of these two men made known. They both had been there. They both were, in, in their minds, equally qualified. But it wasn't their choice, as we've said. And we haven't made this point yet, but in, in Acts 1, verse 2, it's clear Jesus had chosen his apostles, right? He writes, O Theophilus, in the first book, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so it was still up to the Lord Jesus to choose who would replace Judas. It was God's choice. It wasn't Peter's choice. It wasn't any of the other apostles' choice. It wasn't Joseph's choice or Matthias's choice. It was God's choice. In particular, it was the Lord Jesus and his choice. And this, the way in which he demonstrates his choice, strikes us as odd. Casting lots. Right? Casting lots, it's not even always clear exactly what the practice was probably similar to something like we might think of like drawing straws or something like that. Whoever gets the short straw, right, is picked. But this casting of lots is something that is at least related to, if not directly tied with, the practice in the Old Testament with the priesthood and the Urim and the Thummim. We read about these in a few places in the Old Testament. Exodus 28:30 for instance says this, you shall put in the breastplate the breastpiece of judgment the urim and the thummim and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord 
and Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. Or in 1 Samuel 28, 6, we read this, When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. So the truth is, there's not a tremendous amount known about these practices, this Urim and Thummim and exactly what they did, how it worked. But what we do know is that somehow they were connected to seeking wisdom, direction, and answers from the Lord in the Old Testament. Another text in the Old Testament that comes to mind here, though isn't being directly referenced, is Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. As much as it might... uh, we, as much as we might struggle with this, the Bible isn't terribly interested in telling us much about what these practices were, though there's some things we can infer. And I think because the Bible doesn't tell us much about what the practices were, we can learn something from that about whether or not we should be practicing such things at this juncture. But the point of these things, the Urim and the Thummim, the casting of lots and Proverbs 16 or or Acts chapter 1, the point is that there is nothing that takes place in this universe that is outside the control and the will of God. Even things that we are tempted to consider as occurring by random chance, right, the casting of lots or the rolling of dice, these are all given to us. The answer is given from the Lord. This was God's choice, no one else's. And as we see the book of Acts unfold and the rest of the New Testament unfold, what we see is a a continual, gradual, but noticeable movement away from things like the casting of lots. You don't see this happening later on in the book and in in most of the, uh, any of the epistles that that people are casting of lots, either being instructed to or even doing it at all. The movement is away from that and toward simple applications of the Bible for daily life. Which we already see that taking place in our passage as well, as Peter applies the Psalms to their present situation. Now the difference is that those... There's an actual fulfilling of Scripture taking place there as opposed to us applying Scripture to our lives. But it's, it's, it is interesting and worth noting that even before the closing of the canon of Scripture, God is still revealing His Word to humanity at this point in the life of God's people. And yet, the... The, the move toward simply relying on the Bible and not on special revelation. We see this beginning to take place in this book. But now that the canon is closed, a la texts like Hebrews 1.1, that God had spoken by the prophets, but now He's spoken to us by His Son. Now we have God's full disclosure of revelation. And so what we should seek is not more revelation, more uh, direct words from God, but we have the Scripture. And so from it, we can uh, discern the Lord's guidance as we apply it to our lives in the power of the Spirit. Something else to take away from this is that there's nothing coincidental that has ever happened to you. 
Even being here right now, this morning, is not an accident. It's not a coincidence. There's nothing random about it. Every event, every single thing in your life that has ever taken place has been orchestrated and designed by God. Yes, you've made choices, right choices and wrong choices, but that has not in the slightest bit altered God's eternal plan. Luke is crystal clear here and especially over and over again throughout this book as we go through it. He is clear. Men and women choose and they plan and they act and it all works out exactly as God has ordained. Consider one example, Luke's quotation of Peter over in Acts 2. We'll get to this in the coming weeks, but I want to look at verses 22 and 23 for a second here. He says, Men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter says a similar thing in Acts 4, and we'll look again at that in coming months. But what Peter says here is that Jesus was delivered up to be crucified according to what? The definite plan, not of men, but of God. The definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. And yet, though that was true, it was lawless men, Peter says, who were guilty of crucifying and killing Christ. And all of this reiterates what Peter says in our text. The Holy Spirit inspired David centuries before to prophesy concerning the debasement and destruction of Judas' betrayer and his betrayers. So even in Judas' wicked plot against the Messiah, God was still sovereign. And yet Judas was still guilty. And so here in Acts one and we see it in Acts two as well, and what we see is offered up different a few different times here the reality that God is utterly sovereign over everything, including random chance, the casting of lots, including the most wicked event that's ever taken place in the history of the world, the cru- the betrayal and crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, and yet it also is clear here from the pen of Luke that that does not negate or change the responsibility that men bear in their actions. The Jews really were guilty for what they did to Jesus. The Romans really were guilty for what they did. Judas was especially guilty for what he did to Jesus. The apostles really did need to narrow down the search and cast lots for Judas's replacement. Not because it helped God out, but because they were responsible to live wisely with what they had. And so, is God sovereign over every aspect of your life? Yes, without question. But does that remove your responsibility to live wisely and to be active in obedience to God's Word? Not in the slightest. So this is where we leave the disciples. We leave them once more praying, waiting, applying the Scripture, but the appointed day is almost upon them. They've been given their mission. They have received the appointment of the twelfth man on the team, and now they are ready to receive the promise of the Father. 
the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which will come upon them as we consider it next week in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. So that's where we leave them waiting. But what about us? In closing, let me ask you this. Have you ever or do you ever now regularly or even not regularly, but do you find yourself wishing for something like a personal embodied appearance of the Lord Jesus just to tell you what to do? Are you looking for writing in the sky? Are you waiting for that liver shiver to tell you how to make your choice? Let me exhort you lovingly to stop. We're not in the transitional time period of redemptive history where the apostles found themselves in Acts 1. The Spirit had not yet been given. The canon of Scripture had not yet been closed. But now the Spirit has come. Now the canon has been closed. The apostles are dead. Though alive in the Spirit with Christ now. But that does not mean that we have any lesser revelation or communion with God than they did. Far from it. In fact, it would, we could really say up to this point even more so. With the Spirit, we have, brothers and sisters, you have the Spirit who spoke by the mouth of David, who descended upon the apostles at Pentecost. You have Him indwelling you, sanctifying you, fitting you for service in God's temple, the church, and leading you in greater experiences of communion with God through His Word. And so you can know what God says, know who God is, and you can enjoy communion with Him through His Word every single day of your life in just as much, if not greater degrees, than they were at this time in Acts 1.